Welcome to Crime on Caffeine. I'm your host, Erica. And I'm your host, Allison. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode. Today, we be sipping on the cutest coffee of all time because it has to do with dogs. And dogs are so This is the most fun I have ever had with coffee on this show. I will be honest. Guys. Also, we flipped the script on you guys because I got a flavored coffee <laughs> and Erica got a medium roast coffee. Um, but today we be sipping on Puppy Paws Coffee Company and we both built one of their little boxes because that is the cutest thing we've ever heard of. I got the French Bulldog Vanilla. <laughs> I can't. It's so cute. Um, and then you get to pick a treat and a toy for your dog or cat. So I got the peanut butter pumpkin bones. Oh, wait, no, you got those. I got the cranberry cupcakes and donuts. Yeah, that's what I got. And then I got Gussie a little plush toy. It's so cute. They literally have flavors for like every type of dog. So I got the German Shepherd coffee. And then um, I think I got him a ball or something. Yeah, you said you did. But it's adorable. Like they have Pitbull. They have Mixed Breed. They have Pug. They have Husky Holiday Coffee. They have Chocolate Lab. They have Chihuahua. It's like it's so cute. So this was so fun. I love it. Like I had to get it. Yes. I really wanted the Mixed Breed because it's a medium dark roast. But here I am with my my French Bulldog (laughs) Vanilla. I just can't. I had to get it. They do have tea and they have hot cocoa, but 50% of net profits go towards animal shelters and helping these pups find a home, get some food, get some medical attention. So great cause and it's just very fun. So if you have a puppy, even if you don't have a puppy and you want to check this out, great cause, great coffee, lots of fun. Yes. And the Tritos are so yummy. Gus is just slurping them up. If you go to their supported rescues page, it lists all of the um, different rescues that they support, and each one has its own promo code for 10% off. Speaking of promo codes, yeah, if you have some coffee that you want us to promote, or if you know someone with some coffee you want us to promote, hit our DMs, let us know, and we would be happy to try it and tell everybody about it. Yes. We're looking for sponsors in all the right places. <laughs> I don't know why I like that so much. (laughs) Do we have any true crime news? Oh, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. How dare you forget that? And before we get into the true crime news, we have a winner. Oh, my gosh. I just went rogue and, like, decided to do away with Yeah. You said what what giveaway? Yes, we have a winner for our 10K giveaway, guys. A drum roll, please. All right, say it. And the winner is Delaney. Woo! I just keep hearing in my head the RuPaul, you're a winner. You're a winner, baby. Thank you so much, Delaney. If you guys live in the Florida area, Tampa, Riverview area. She is a fantastic stylist at Salon Elysian. I know she's a fantastic hairstylist because I have had the pleasure of knowing her and working with her. And 
she's fantastic. So if you do ever need to get your hair done, go see her in Riverview. Um, her at on Instagram is at brush by Brady, but Delaney, thank you so much for being a supporter of our show. We're so happy that you like it and we hope you enjoy your giveaway prizes. Yes. I'm so excited to send them out. Finally have our winner. Thank you so much to everybody who participated in the giveaway. I know I'm already going to hear from Nate that he's upset that he didn't win because (laughs) he posted like every day. So thank you so much, but um, we really appreciate your guys' support, and we just had so much fun this last year with all of you, and we're really excited to see what 2022 has in store for us. I'm just freaking pumped, and I cannot believe it's 2022. It sounds so weird to say out loud, 2022, 2022. But anyway, I do have some true crime news. Okay, Buckle up, everybody. So, you know, I was on the interweb today looking up some true crime. And just this headline, really, I was baffled. Authorities in New Hampshire are investigating a disappearance of a seven-year-old girl who was last seen in 2019, but was only reported missing last week. Why? That's what we don't have news on, the why. The Manchester police confirmed in an interview on Friday that, yes, this little girl was last seen in 2019. They have no idea who the person who called her in missing is at this point. What? Yeah, it says it's unclear who reported her missing. She would have been five years old when she was last seen. And all they had to say was the circumstances surrounding this prolonged absence are very concerning and are being thoroughly investigated. Now I need to look this up. What is this girl's name? Her name is Harmony Montgomery. She is about four feet tall. She's probably about 50 pounds. Uh, She's legally blind in her right eye and she wears eyeglasses. The Manchester Police Chief Alan Aldenberg confirmed to the Union Leader that his officers did conduct a search of the home of her parents, and they have not released any further information about the case except for that. No arrests have been made. They're just asking if anybody with information about her disappearance could call the Manchester Police Department at 603 668 8711 or the Manchester Crime Line, which is 603-624-4040. Um, they only searched the house? According to what I've read, yes, it says that they conducted a search of the home. I need to know more information. I need to know what's going on with the parents. I need them to search the yard and any surrounding bodies of water. I'm so confused. Yeah, so this news just came out at about like 10.45 this morning. So I will keep you guys updated. And I I just couldn't – I didn't care that there wasn't a lot of information. I just felt like I needed to talk about it because this was crazy to me. Last seen in 2019, it's now 2022. It said October of 2019 was when she was last seen. But, like, how? How would you not report her missing until now? Something is up. Are the parents together? I don't have that information. 
Sorry, you know me. I come with the questions. I know, I know. But I have no answers for you at this point. We will give you guys updates when we know. Yes, yes, we will. But that is all I have for true crime news today. So Erica's been hyping me up about her episode. And now I'm just itching. So my case today is a little bit different. This case was solved. And then it was unsolved. Uh... I don't know. I don't, I, we may not, no, we might know. I don't, well, let's just get into it. This is the murder of Susan Nason. Get into it. Susan K. Nason was born September 27th, 1960 in Foster City, California. I don't really have a ton of information on her childhood. Really all you can find is like what happened the day that she disappeared. Um, but just days before her ninth birthday, her mother, Margaret, sent her to go run an errand. I think she was allowing her to run over to a friend's house to return a pair of shoes. I did get conflicting explanations between sources, just as like if she was going to run an errand or if she was walking to school or like things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, either way, it was the last time anyone would ever see from Susan or hear from her. And searches started immediately but it would be months before anything was discovered. So on December 2nd, her body was found under a mattress lying near the Crystal Springs Reservoir, which was about 10 miles out from where the Nason family lived. Investigators stated that the body was too badly decomposed to tell if she'd been sexually assaulted, but they presumed that her cause of death was blunt force trauma, possibly from a rock. They really didn't have much evidence to go off of, and they had very few credible leads that they could go off of as well. So the Nason family ended up moving away from Foster City in 1971, and the case went cold. Which, I was thinking about this, I was like, in order for your marriage and like your family to survive, you would need to move. But at the same time, I feel like with the case being unsolved, I would feel very disconnected not living in the same city. And I would feel like I would need to be there to get the case solved. I don't know. It was just like something I was thinking of. Like, what would you do? I would have to be there. Yeah. It doesn't make sense to not be there. In my head. I ain't judging, though. No, I know. But I wonder if after two years they were just like, damn, we can't do this anymore. Yeah, it would be really hard to just be around an area where you have a lot of memories, not all of them good anymore. Yeah, and, you know, you thought that place was safe before, but... Clearly it's not. And with it being unsolved, it's like, oh, well, the person that put our daughter in danger is still out there. So like I said, the case went cold until 1989. Wow. So while Susan was growing up, there was a family that was really close friends with the Nason family named, um, they were the Franklins. And so they were super close because Eileen Franklin was the same age as Susan And they lived right around the corner from each other. So, like, they were always over each other's houses to play. And so families knew each other. Kids were really close. So, like I said, it's 1989. Little Eileen Franklin is all grown up living in Los Angeles. And she has two kids of her own. She's got a two-year-old boy named Aaron and a five-year-old girl named Jessica. So, this is where it gets wild. According to Eileen, as she sat there and watched her children play... She looked into her daughter's eyes and she started to get a memory appearing in her mind. And this memory was of her childhood friend, Susan Nason, being murdered. What? Yeah. Crazy, right? And 
she just kind of ignored it at first, like didn't really know what to think of it because wasn't able to understand it, but it kept on coming back more vivid and more detailed until she was able to like make sense of what was going on. And so she told her therapist, she told her family, and she told her husband, Barry Lisker, Lisker, Lisker. Um, but he told her to go to the police, but she was very hesitant. And I mean, could think about it. Like, I can't even imagine just having this random ass memory pop into my brain and just being like, all right, well, I'm going to take this and go to the police. This was 1989. Yeah. Anything, I feel like in 2022, it would be more reasonable, less surprising. But like, I definitely understand her hesitations because, I mean, she didn't even know how to make sense of what she was seeing. And people were probably like, I don't know about that. But. On November 17th, 1989, Barry made an anonymous call to authorities. According to court documents, Barry called and said that his wife witnessed a murder at the hands of someone she knew when she was eight years old, and that she was hesitant to come forward because the murderer had threatened her in the past, and she feared that even if he was convicted, he would only serve a short sentence and harm her for revenge. So they had another call that day, and this time Eileen came on the call. They still, like, didn't give any information. Like, didn't say who they were. They were just kind of telling her, like, what might happen if she did decide to report the crime and what might happen if she had to be a witness in court. And they were just kind of explaining the outcome to her. Mm -hmm. Still hesitant. Three days later, they decided to call and give a little bit more information. Um, Barry told the investigator on the phone that the killer was a member of her family. All that they know is that this guy's name is Barry. They know nothing else. They told them that this person had raped his own children. And so between these calls with the investigators, Eileen was calling her family and talking to them about it. And the family was really worried because they were afraid of any danger from reporting it. And Barry, her husband, expressed these fears to the investigator on the phone as well. They also just talked about how they're scared that he wouldn't receive any time for it. And the investigator said, okay, like, I can't promise that there will be an outcome, but I can promise you that they wouldn't pursue this case if they didn't think that it was worth it and it was able to go to court and, like, get a conviction. He said that the cases that they like to take to court are cases where 95 to 100% of the time they get a conviction and they wouldn't bother taking this to court if it were any less. So he's not promising anything, but he's saying, like, if you give us the information, they think it's good enough, they'll do it. So on November 21st, there was another call where Barry and Eileen, she was now just referring to herself as Mrs. Barry. She still wasn't saying her name. They called again, gave more details, still hesitant to give any names. This is the information that Eileen decided to give them that day. She said that she was in a car with the suspect and they picked Susan up from her house across the street. They drove to the woods toward Half Moon Bay. The suspect raped Susan in the back of the car. After Eileen remembers seeing Susan sitting about 15 feet away from the car on like a big rock or like something along those lines. And she said that she saw the killer strike Susan's head with a rock. And then she saw Susan raise her hand to her head before the killer then took another hit. She remembered Susan had been wearing a dress and her clothes had not been removed. um, Just like pushed up when he violated her. She also remembers that the killer made her help him move the mattress so that he could use it to cover Susan's body. Eileen then claimed that the killer pushed her to the ground and told her that if she ever told anyone, no one would believe her and they'd put her away too because she was a part of it and he would kill her. 
Eileen then promised she would provide the name if her details were consistent with any details they had with the case or any evidence. So that was pretty smart. Wow. Yeah. The following day, the same investigator and the district attorney called Eileen and Barry to tell them that her information was excellent and connected perfectly to the details that they had on the case. They assured the family that they would further investigate and would not contact the killer until they could absolutely determine that he would be prosecuted, though, like I said before, they could not guarantee a conviction. Later that day, Eileen finally provided her full name and agreed to meet in person to provide further details with Detectives Morse and Cassandro. And she revealed that it was, in fact, her father, George Franklin, who had killed Susan Nason. What? Yeah. Oh, I wasn't expecting that. Nope. That, wow. She met with detectives in person on November 25th and reported further details. She said her father was driving her and her sister Janice to school in George's Volkswagen van. They picked up Susan and George made Janice get out of the car. I don't really know where she went. This like wasn't clear to me. I don't really know if he like dropped her off at school, made her get out of the car or like at home, made her get out of the car or just was like, Bye. See, I don't know. Just get she was out like a of the car. <laughs> <laughs> so he told Eileen and Susan that they were going to play hooky. And she described the route that they took to the wooded area in the twin mattress in the back of the van. The girls were playing in the car until George joined them. I, I really don't like this. This is so gross. Um, um, I don't want it. Pinned Susan to the mattress. And according to Eileen, he began to rub back and forth on her in a humping motion. She said that he'd pushed up her dress and that Susan was wearing something white underneath it. So she then described the moments where they were all outside of the vehicle, Susan sitting on a rock and George murdering Susan with a rock, and that Susan had a ring that was crushed and the stone fell off of it as well. Remember that. It's important. Okay. She remembered helping her father get the mattress from the van and carry it to Susan's body, but she doesn't recall what he did after this. She also told officers that when she started seeing these memories come back, she told her therapist and members of her family. She said that her mother told her that she'd come to the conclusion years ago that George had murdered Susan and that she'd even confronted him about it. But she's not the only one who had a hunch. But Eileen explained that her father had molested her, raped her older sisters Janice and Kate, and had held Eileen down while another man raped her. She stated that her father was violent with the entire family and that her father made a comment in recent years that, I'm sorry, this episode is like really gross. I don't want it. Quote, little girls are really sexy. In parentheses, I wrote, I'm going to vomit. And also made a joke about engaging in incest with Janice. Remember the daughter that he just like told to get out of the car? She's um like a year older than Eileen and Susan were. I'm disgusted. Yeah, and at this point, investigators were kind of concerned for a minute that Eileen was just, like, wanting to get revenge against her father, so she was, like, pinning this on him. But she denied this, claiming that she was truly coming forward after her progress in therapy. So, investigators wanted to corroborate her claims as much as they possibly could, because obviously, you can read about what happened in newspaper articles. This girl's body was discovered under a mattress, this, this, and that, and then come and say, oh, I remember this happened. But they wanted to see, like, did she give any information that you wouldn't have been able to just get from reading the newspaper? And she did. They found two rings, one missing a stone on the skeleton. Mm. 
Mm -hmm. And they also noted that the coroner's report confirms that Susan had been hit with a rock twice, which was stated by Eileen as well. Not something that was in any articles or anything. Mm -hmm. So they then decided to interview Eileen's sister, Janice. She remembered seeing Susan wearing a dress that day and had a feeling about her being in the vehicle, but she said that she couldn't really remember it completely. Remember, she was only in the vehicle for a short time, so she has no idea what happened. But at this time, um, like I said, she was like 10 years old. I think she was like a grade above the two girls. And she remembers the backseat of the van being taken out, so like the third row of seating wasn't there, and it was replaced with a mattress. She remembers the mattress being gone after Susan's disappearance. Hmm. She also correctly told her mother where she thinks Susan would have been found, depending on where she thinks her father would take her and where he liked to drive, which was the route that was near Half Moon Bay or whatever. Mm -hmm. She'd witnessed him holding Susan and Eileen on his lap and having them play a game with his... I hate this word. Yeah, I'm not into this. No, can we just say belly button? Just say, I hate the word navel. Do, do you get uncomfortable at the grocery store when you have to go buy the navel oranges? Um, no, because I don't even know where those are. I, this is not Florida. I'm so sorry that you guys don't have navel oranges. Navel. We say don't. navel again. <laughs> no, I don't stop. Navel. But she said it was like as though his, quote, body was the game. I don't know. I don't know. I'm gr- like really grossed out. But she also confirmed that her father had first molested her when she was in third or fourth grade and in seventh grade tried to have sex with her, but instead forced her to perform oral. She recalled him molesting their other sister, Kate, um, because Kate and Jana shared a bedroom they were growing up. And she further confirmed that he was, in fact, violent toward the entire family. And she said that she remembered him acting really strange the evening that Susan disappeared and that that night she was very fearful of him. She reported that when the police called to speak to her about Susan a few days after she disappeared, her father kicked her so hard in the back that she fell on her face and suffered a permanent bone injury. Oh, my God. That's terrible. She said she understood this as a threat to not speak to the police. And she said that she found it really odd that the subject of Susan's disappearance and murder was never spoken about in the Franklin household. The children were literally best friends, but it was never spoken about. She told detectives that in 1984, she'd called police to report that she had a strong feeling her father was involved in the murder, but she didn't really have anything for them to go off of. It was just like a hunch. But she recalls her mother also believing he was responsible and that she was too afraid to go to police. On November 29th, 1989, police arrested George Franklin for the murder of Susan Nason. Um, they went and they searched his home and they found child porn and a bunch of other gross porn and figured that would happen. But his trial began on Halloween of the following year. Eileen was the main witness and the prosecution's case was centered on her repressed memories, which was huge because there had never been anything like this before. And this time period in the 80s and 90s, they called it the memory wars because a lot of different cases and allegations involving like child sexual abuse came because of repressed memories that came out during therapy and things like that. So there was a lot of controversy surrounding this. But psychiatrists and psychologists testified on behalf of both the prosecution and the defense. For the prosecution, they explained the theory of repressed memories while the defense argued that Eileen did not fit the profile for someone who experienced repressed memories, which I don't really know how because 
I mean, given that this is true, that would definitely qualify as trauma, I think. Yeah. Um, I feel as though maybe the defense's argument is more surrounding, like, are these repressed memories or are these fabricated memories? Because, you know, there's really no way to prove that stuff unless you can go back and find some evidence. Um, They also argued that her memories were the same details reported in papers, which was obviously true. But I said earlier there were some things that weren't in papers that only Eileen would have known if she'd actually been there. Um, But the court actually wouldn't allow them to bring the newspapers in to read, to show, to prove their point, which was interesting. But we'll talk about that. Um, I also wanted to bring up that Eileen did visit George in prison. She was, they kind of told her, like, you might not want to do that because it might look bad. You still have some empathy towards, sympathy towards him, whatever. Or, I don't know, they just said it might look bad. But she went because she wanted him to confess. And he was silent because there were signs in there that say, you know, you might be recorded. What you say, like, might be used against Mm. you, whatever. And so he was like, I'm not going to say anything. And so they took his silence as an admission of guilt. Which oh. like, I thought I was, I'm not, I'm not trying to defend him at all. I'm just, because this is all going to backfire. Well. On November 30th, despite there being no physical evidence, George Franklin was found guilty for the murder of Susan Nason. I know we've talked about this before, but California had a really shitty statute of limitations for sexual offenses. It was three years, so he could not be charged for her rape. But he was the first person in the United States to be convicted from repressed memories, which is fucking crazy. They literally had no evidence. They were just going off of this girl's memory that randomly came to her 20 years later. Wow. So... On January 29th, 1991, Franklin was sentenced to life in prison, which at the end of the day, whether he did this or not, this dude was a monster. Yes. Which I wholeheartedly believe. I just think the repressed memories is one thing, but the fact that the whole family had a feeling about him doing this, the fact that it was her best friend, the fact that they were literally with her that day, the fact that he was so weird about them talking to the police to the point where he literally physically injured his daughter over it the fact that they never spoke about it that is all leading me to believe that he very well could have done this not just her having a repressed memory exactly unfortunately in 1995 a federal court of appeals overturned the conviction stating that the judge should have allowed eileen's testimony to be challenged by the defendant by allowing newspaper articles to be brought into the courtroom for evidence so that's where they fucked up The prosecution easily could have come back from that if they did allow the newspapers in because of the rings and because of knowing that she was hit twice. The court also found that using Franklin's silence as evidence of an admission of guilt violated his constitutional right to remain silent, which obviously is true. Like, totally agree with that. Um, They also noted it was controversial for them to use repressed memory as a defense because they can't be proven as accurate. George Franklin ended up suing Eileen and the psychologist who testified against him for, quote, conspiracy to commit false testimony, but the courts just rejected the the lawsuit. And he was released after spending six years in jail. That's so crazy. So crazy. There was also a point where Eileen 
um, believed that her father was responsible for the Gypsy Hill killings of 18-year-old Veronica Casillo and 17-year-old Paula Baxter. Wow. Um, they were stabbed to death in 1976, but he actually had an alibi for the time of these murders, and their killer was found in 2018. Nothing really happened with him. He ended up dying in 2016, but, you know, there were no, like, he didn't do any harm to anyone that right. we know of. Um, like, nothing ever happened with the family. But I, I don't know. Like, what do you think? Because to this day, it's technically unsolved. Like, we don't really know if he killed her or not. We don't know. I think he did it. Yeah. Okay. Me too. Okay. Good. <laughs> I just feel and like I would be. I would be very surprised if he didn't because of his violent tendencies and obviously the behaviors with his own children. Yeah, I agree. I just everything that you just said, and then her repressed memories. I just can't see how it wasn't him. I can see why they let him out and why they didn't have enough, you know, evidence or whatever. Right. I see how it ended up this way, but I feel like, I feel like it's pretty clear that it it was him. Yeah. And it's literally just one of those unfortunate situations where you have no concrete evidence. So, like, there is nothing they can do to connect this guy to her. Exactly. Which is really sad because he was an absolute fucking monster. And if he didn't kill her, I wholeheartedly believe that he's killed someone else in his life. Oh, 100%. I'm with you on that. I did just want to talk about repressed memory. Um, According to the American Psychological Association, abuse and trauma can affect children and adults in different ways. So children, for example, may have trouble storing their memories after experiencing abuse, which can affect how they interpret their memories. Other mechanisms such as dissociation may also affect memory. So if that child dissociates, they may not have access to their memory for some time, perhaps years. This is not the same as repression, though. Um, So Elizabeth Loftus was an expert witness on George Franklin's defense team, and she said that convincing evidence of repression needs to show three things. It needs to show, one, that someone was abused in the past, two, that they completely forgot about the abuse, and three, that they later remembered it. But she said that almost no studies on repressed memories meet all three of these conditions. And researchers have also pointed out that it's possible to create false memories by using the same methods that are used to recover repressed memories. So like hypnosis and like things like that, just due to suggestibility. And also it's very hard to do studies on this because You have to obviously study people who have already undergone trauma. You cannot inflict trauma on your participant. But a 2012 study showed people may falsely remember details of traumatic events, and other research has supported this. Research has also shown it's possible to suggest false memories to people who later recall fake memories as vividly as their true memories. Um, There was also a study in 2017 that studied people who had PTSD, depression, or any history of trauma, and found that they might be more likely to create false memories when they're exposed to information that relates to their experience, which is very interesting. On the other hand, there was a study done in 2015 that looked at retrieval of stressful memories in mice, and it found that the mice only remembered an electric shock when they returned to the same brain state, so they have to be in that same state of trauma to remember it. 
So this is saying, for example, like, say you were abused when you were a kid, totally forgot about it, and then you were abused by a boyfriend years later, and this made you remember it. Mm-hmm. So it's really tough because I feel like there's, like, a lot of back and forth. It's really it, – like, you obviously cannot prove repressed memories – And the way that they're discovered is the same way that a lot of false memories are created. So that's why this topic is so controversial. And this wasn't the only trial that dealt with repressed memories. There were actually a couple other cases and a lot of them in the the same time period. Like I said, they called this the memory wars. But Really? um, Yeah. Between 1984 and 1990, there was the McMartin preschool trial. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but in – McMartin Preschool in Manhattan Beach, California, there were allegations of sexual abuse and satanic rituals. A mother said that her child had been sodomized and this eventually escalated and had like this huge domino effect where there were hundreds of allegations and in 1990, the convictions were overturned um, because the therapists had unintentionally implanted false memories into the preschoolers' minds. What? Yeah, go look that up if you're interested. I This stuff is so crazy to me. I am going to have to look it up. That sounds wild. There's another case in California in 1984 where a man named Joseph Paisley was arrested because he'd matched the description of a suspect who'd broken into a woman's home and tried to rape her. But when he realized other people were awake, he fled. So the woman identified him from a lineup and the person who testified on this man's behalf was actually Elizabeth Loftus, the same person who testified for George Franklin. But she explained that cross race misidentification is what happened. And it's very common when identifying people from a lineup and stress distorts memory. So that's probably why it happened, but um, he ended up being acquitted. And in 1990, There was a 19-year-old girl from California named Holly Ramona. She was doing therapy sessions, and she started to recall being abused by her father. And in these sessions, they used sodium amytal, which is called truth serum because it's known to make people believe they're recalling real events. I don't know, but... um. They that was another case of false memories being implanted, and her father was able to successfully sue the therapist for negligence in 1994. Um, this was actually the first case that found therapists guilty of implanting false memories. They be wildin', yeah. Truth serum, super, super whoa, important. yeah. Let me, it's a drug that is a barbiturate derivative. Oh, okay, so this is what they use in. When they do hypnosis and therapy and they try to get you to remember things. It was actually used widely during World War II as an anti-anxiety drug. It is no longer used as truth serum because subjects sometimes develop false memories after the fact. So there you have it. Um, If you guys want to watch, Oxygen has a few part documentary on this called Buried. And it's fascinating. It's actually how I came across... You know what? My mom told me about this. Really? I think. Or I'm just making that up and that's a false memory. I was just about to say. Pretty sure my mom told me about this. Did she give you that truth serum stuff? (laughs) Yeah, no. I I definitely she definitely told me about it because she is always the one who's watching like 
the true crime documentaries and like the 2020 and like she always texts me when something's coming up. Well, I love that. But I really liked it. I liked your unsolved case. You and these unsolved things. I mean, it was technically unsolved, yeah. Technically unsolved, but in our in our hearts <laughs> and in our minds, we say unsolved, the murder of Susan <laughs> Technically unsolved, but we solved that shit. Thank you guys so much for listening. Yes, thank you guys so much for listening. Please make sure, I know the giveaway's over, but please make sure to keep promoting us and spreading the word about the pod. And you can follow us on all social medias, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all the things, all the goods, at Crime on Caffeine. And our website is just crimeoncaffeine.com. Am I missing something? Yeah, you are missing to follow us on Spotify, rate us five stars on Spotify because you can do that now and go ahead and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. That way you'll be notified every time we put out a new episode, which it hasn't been the same time every week. So it's really important that you subscribe and follow, but it's probably still going to be Wednesdays. It will be Wednesdays because we're (laughs) just trying our best to find other days, but it just seems like you guys like Wednesdays. Yeah, and I think Wednesdays also work the best for us. I feel like when we try other days, it doesn't go as smoothly. Wiley Coyote all over the place. But another request. So I feel like we do a lot of smaller named cases, and we want to do some like big cases Larger. that like everybody knows. But we wanna we want to put some detail into it. We want to put the psychology into it just to make it different than you know other shows or documentaries that you might have seen. So give us some big name cases that you're really interested in, like the Ted Bundys, the John Wayne Gacy's, like we want to do something. So tell us what you want to hear first. We're definitely going to eventually do it all, but tell us what you guys want to hear so that we can get started working real hard on that for you. But yeah, thank you guys so much for listening. And as usual, we will catch on the next one. (laughs) 